Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello, I'm Richard Reinch. I'm the director of the Kenneth Simon Center for American Studies here at the Heritage Foundation. And today I'm interviewing our visiting fellow, Samuel Gregg, about American individualism rightly understood, which is really a way of saying uh, what is American freedom and what is the content of American freedom. We're also going to discuss uh, the enemies to that American freedom. Uh, I mentioned Sam Gregg is a visiting fellow at the Simon Center. He is distinguished, a distinguished fellow and political, uh, in political economy and a senior research faculty at the American Institute for Economic Research. Uh, Sam is a writer and speaker with extensive experience and reach on political economy, on economic freedom, on natural law, on any number of topics germane to a free society. He's the author of 16 books, including, most recently, The Next American Economy. He's also the author of The Essential Natural Law and Reason, Faith, and the Struggle for Western Civilization. Two of his books have been shortlisted for ISI's Conservative Book of the Year Award. In addition uh, to the, all of this um, and the many articles and, and uh, papers and books he's written, he's a contributor, a senior contributor to Law and Liberty and an affiliate scholar at the Acton Institute. Samuel Gregg, thank you so much for coming on today to discuss uh, this new paper you've written, American Individualism Rightly Understood. Richard, thanks for having me on. It's good to be with you and with the Heritage folks again. So thinking about this uh, this essay, this First Principles essay, American Individualism Rightly Understood, um, why do we need American individualism? Don't we have – we live in an incredibly individualistic society where everyone does their thing, does what they want to do, uh, although we also seem to live in a very conformist society, a very egalitarian society. Uh, and those demands are enforced upon us with political correctness, um, institutional conformity demands, uh, media demands for how we talk and speak. Uh, so do is the thing that we need really American individualism? Well, thanks for the question, Richard. And the short answer is yes, we do need American individualism because it's a form of individualism that I think reflects the very best of the American founding and the American experience in general. Uh, you mentioned that individualism is sort of rampant in our society, and that's certainly true. But there's more than one form of individualism. And one of the things I try and do in this heritage paper is to point out that the ideal of American individualism, rightly understood, uh, very much uh, draws upon the classical tradition. It draws upon the Scottish Enlightenment tradition. It also draws upon uh, Judeo and Christian ethics to explain why the individual is important, the individual person is so significant, and why it's important not to let that individual person be consumed or consumed by the group, so to speak. But it's also a conception of individualism that sees individuals as social beings, as associative beings, who have to do everything in many respects with and in association with other people. So that, to that extent, American individualism uh, is very much opposed to, for example, self-individualism as self-expression, which is a very prominent conception of 
individualism that flourishes primarily on the American left. Uh, and it's a way that's it's a particular form of individualism that is frankly hedonistic in its understanding of the purpose of human life and the purpose of human choice. And American individualism, properly understood, doesn't have that role of the individual's relationship with other people or the purpose of human existence and the purpose of individual free choice, which it ties very closely to the idea of virtue. So that's that's to make it clear that American individualism is very different from the types of individualism that is that are flourishing in parts of America today. But another reason I think we need to emphasize it is because we're facing a fair amount of collectivist pressure from the left and even some sections of the right these days that necessitate us affirming the importance of the individual. And here I'm really talking about things like the emergence of identity politics, of the whole diversity movement, which I think represents a type of corruption of the very idea of individualism, and the the reduction of the individual to any number of particular group identities so that uh, your, your, your identity consists of what your skin color or your religion or your social background happens to be. And any uh, dissent from that position mm. that's saying that, well, I'm, a, I don't know, for example, an Afro-American man who, who believes in sort of conservative principles under identity politics – uh, or under current conceptions of diversity, that's basically forbidden these days, right? You're, so, you're, you're basically a heretic if you say, well, I'm a, a woman, but I'm also a conservative. Uh, as you say, that's not allowed to be said today. And that's precisely why I think we need to rehabilitate this idea of American individualism rightly understood. And many of the authors that I draw upon in, in the piece, whether it's Michael Novak, the, the late Michael Novak, or people like Alexis de Tocqueville, they understood that, that American individualism was something very specific, and it dealt very well with these problems that we're facing with today, whether it's these types of collectivism or this self-expression that we see being articulated by left by the left, but even some libertarians as well on, on the right as well. Isn't, um, when I look at, broadly speaking, these three categories you talk about as being the foundation of American individualism, um, religion, uh, classical republicanism, uh, classical republican virtues, which are in, in the founding. Uh, most prominently, people would recognize, hopefully, maybe George Washington. Uh, and also, you, you mentioned the Scottish Enlightenment and self-interest and commerce and uh, pursuing gain through uh, you know, honest work, hard work, uh, being prudent with your finances, saving money, investing, all of that, being a part of a commercial society. Seems to me all three of those things are rooted in uh, nature. I mean, that's what they would share, that there is, at ultimate, there's a human nature. There's a foundation, uh, and even there's an order above human nature, a God, uh, reason, um, something that we have to respond to or conform to or participate in with our choices. And if we think about the enemies of that American individualism, and according to this paper you've written, there's diversity, ideology, uh, which is really an enemy of of those things, and also expressive individualism. Expressive individualism meaning like my sense of what I want to do, of my will, of my freedom, is what will equal sort of an authentic me, uh, you know, regardless of any traditional account of virtue or what I should actually do with, with my freedom. 
And so you've got sort of the wiping away of nature uh, that we're dealing with in these two these two boxes, both diversity ideology and expressive individualism. Yes, because one of the things I think that um, American individualism properly understood draws upon is the idea that we do have a common human nature that transcends the particularities of our of our time, uh, but also the the circumstances that we happen to be living in. So we all possess reason. All human beings possess reason. And that's not just instrumental reason. That's also the reason that enables us to know that knowledge is preferable to ignorance, that work is better than laziness, etc. Uh, but it's also a nature that reflects the fact that we are fallible human beings and we need to recognize and understand that, which, of course, I think is one of the great contributions of uh, the Scottish Enlightenment. Uh, and also the idea that um, that that virtue is the goal. Virtue, living the virtuous life, is the goal. That 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 being industriousness, industriousness is better, always better than being lazy. That prudence is always better than uh, recklessness or cowardice. So, uh, yes, there's, there's definitely this idea that there is this type of fixed human nature and that fulfilling the best of that nature is not about uh, uh, authenticity, right? We hear that word used over and over and over again, to be authentic individuals. And so uh, authenticity is all about our desire and expressing and living out those desires and that society should make as much space as possible for humans to pursue their desires and, and, and in fact, more than that, expressly affirm individuals for living their life in this particular matter. So what matters is no longer whether a person's choice leads to virtuous or vicious action, rather what matters is being authentic being genuine. And that comes back to, I think, a type of relativism, right? Because it, it ultimately holds that that what's important is that we have to be true to ourselves that, or that everyone has their own truth. And that has some pretty devastating consequences when you start to think about it. Because, if, for example, the idea of rights, that there are objective rights, duties that we owe to other people that we recognize through our reason. Well, Expressive individualism means that uh, you need to no longer need to explain why a right is must be is grounded in some conception of objective truth. It's simply enough just to desire something. That's the end of the discussion. So, and that in turn implies that the state <laughs> must act in some way to help you realize your particular desire or your particular claim. So that's that's one thing we're dealing with. Now, to, to get back to the diversity ideology. You know, diversity ideology is not about the individual. I mean, we, we think about the individual and diversity. We often think about it, those two things going together. But diversity ideology, really it says that your membership of a group or and your association with the history of a group, however real or unreal it may happen to be, is much more important than your particular talents, your ideas, your interests, your individual history. And... So that what that means is that just being Latino or male or woman or black or whatever is much more important 
than your individual accomplishments and character. So the worth that you bring to, I don't know, the boardroom, for example, is not so much about your uh, business skill. It's much more about your skin color or whether you're a man or a woman or whatever it happens to be. So you can start to see how expressive individualism and diversity ideology they, they, they're sort of reflecting the same type of underpinnings of relativism, the denial of the individual, and the truth about the individual, the truth about who we are as human beings. And American individualism has always recognized that there are truths about human beings, and it's given expression to these, this particular conception of individuality in a way that avoids all the problems of self-expression and diversity ideology, but also is robust enough to resist the types of collectivism that we're seeing coming from the left and even from some parts of the right today. It seems also, thinking about the diversity ideology, this becomes a way of thinking about the sort of rapid onset of transgenderism itself. That is to say, um, uh, and I think working, or working in a way with expressive individualism too, that if I desire something, if that's uh, what what makes it true, and then I want to sort of authenticate that in my life, then if I am a biological man and want to be a woman, that should just should be recognized. I mean, that that's sort of like the foundation of that movement in a way. And then of course, and then of course, it joins and it, it joins up. I think with the diversity ideology and says, and this is just now who I am. This is my identity. Um, and uh, speech, your speech, your actions should conform to it, to my inner desire, inner expression of who I want to be. And, of course, it's limitless, right? Uh, gender is, is sort of a limitless claim. There are any number, you know, there, who knows how many genders there could be, as many people as desire them, desire different genders. Uh, and so now we've back into the situation where we really can't even understand who the human person is anymore. So we really do have our work cut out for us. We certainly do because diversity ideology, what is, I think, particularly uh, problematic about it is that, and I say this pretty explicitly in the paper, it it basically offers a closed loop of thought, closed loop of thought. And the, what that means is when you enter this loop, you have to accept certain propositions of diversity. So for example, diversity ideology holds that your membership of a particular group, whether you're white, male, Christian, whatever it happens to be, uh, means that you are privileged, end of discussion, uh, or that you labor under particular burdens um, because you're female, you're black, or whatever it happens to be. And um, so for all the talk about the, the, the um, freedom that it offers, it actually is a very closed loop because, and you find this whenever anyone who belongs to any of these particular groups starts to question the, the, the label that they have been assigned as a consequence of diversity ideology. So, for example, if you're, a, I don't know, a, a, a gay man, for example, and you say, well, I'm a conservative and uh, I believe that uh, American history has its flaws, but America is a great country, and um, I, I have some questions about transgender ideology or whatever it happens to be. Then the gay man is sort of pushed out of the picture and says, "Well, you know, you actually aren't supposed to even exist. 
right? Yeah, people like people like you. Even that sort of language is used. People like you uh, are not are really betraying your group. You're traitors to your group. Well, Joe Joe Biden telling black voters who voted for Trump that you ain't black. Quote. Yeah. Quote, in fact, I cite that in the. Yeah. Yeah. I said that in the paper because it's a classic example that if you're a African-American man or an African-American woman and you think that um, the United States, the Republic, the American experiment in order of liberty, etc., is good and you maybe have some conservative views on economics or social policy or whatever it happens to be, then according to diversity ideology, you're not, you're literally not really black, <laughs> And so you can see how de dehumanizing it is and how it actually de denies individuality, despite the fact that diversity people talk about individuality all the time. It's far from being the case. You know, it sounds to me, you know, it's this quest for an unlimited freedom uh, backs us into sort of almost unlimited despotism, certainly when it comes to thought and expression um, and un understanding how, how one would actually negotiate a, you know, a free a virtuous society, uh, you you would be limited really to the one really one very narrow set of thoughts about the human person, which will constantly need to be enforced by the government. And then, of course, you know what also, as you know, makes self you know small government and the rule of law possible. Really, is a lot of limitations that we enforce on ourselves uh, through self government, and and that also becomes difficult to understand because precisely this embrace of sort of the unlimited human will. And and the requirements on other people that they think just this way, uh, just these two ways, really about human beings. Um, but you know that that does spark a question. So we, you know, in your paper, you were trying to you were trying to rebuild this case for American individualism, and you know we had we had really a very religious society in America in the founding, and through most of our history, uh, relative to most Western nations, America is still uh, uh, religiously uh, devout and active. Also, the classical Republican virtues of the founding uh, were a way that prominent founders thought of their own public actions uh, as virtuous. That seems, you know, we, we're very cynical now about politics in general, about public life. And then also markets themselves, the sort of foundation of the market, uh, of market activity being rooted in ethical behavior and thought. And um, all of that uh, is, is really challenged uh, extensively now. How did that fall away? Is there something about America itself? Is, is America uh, – is, is a part that you're missing that it's just corrosive of these things, that America was just sort of, to use, to use a current thinker's term, uh, built on enlightenment, ra enlightenment rationalism? And that sort of eroded all of these things. Yes. Well, I, I, as it happens, I don't believe that America was exclusively built upon – Enlightenment rationalism, and uh, even the phrase Enlightenment rationalism, I think, reflects um, a putting aside of the fact that uh, there's more than one Enlightenment. Enlightenment thinkers often differ radically from each other about all sorts of questions, and it's, there's a vast difference between, for example, the Scottish Enlightenment and even the American Enlightenment compared to, for example, the late French Enlightenment. So, there's some, so even that expression, I think, is... Uh, problematic in terms of genealogy of ideas and accurate conception of history. But to get to your, your broader point, um, the concern you point to is something that, that has been highlighted before 
by people far wiser than myself and you, and most prominently, I think, by Alexis de Tocqueville, right, in his Democracy in America, because he said that um, the society in America that he, he entered into in the 1830s was obviously a society of individuals. He also noted it was highly associative in nature. But he also noted that this individualism went, tended to go along with a type of egalitarianism, an egalitarianism that was hostile to saying, well, certain, certain ideas are more valuable than others that virtue is good and vice is, is not, and we can understand and recognize the difference between these sorts of things, <clears throat> and that he talked about this pressures towards an equality of conditions that flowed from, um, uh, I guess, a conception of human beings as equal, as of, as of course we are in the sense of humans being equal qua human. But he pointed out that egalitarianism is when you take this idea of equality and you, you, you run it through the whole, the whole society as the thing that must define everything. And he noticed at the time that this was something that was present in the United States. He worried about it because he thought, well, what is there that's going to prevent this egalitarianism from really crushing liberty in many respects and using the state as a way of doing so? And he pointed to several factors. Of course, one was the, the habit of association that he said was just everywhere in America. Um, uh, he said that's very much a legacy of some of the first settlers of, of the American colonies. Uh, he also thought that commerce tended to bring people together in ways and that Americans, even though they might chafe a little bit at wealth inequalities, they, they, were, they were still nonetheless... Uh, more or less reconciled to wealth differentials because they saw this as the, the natural outcome of a nation in which Tocqueville described everyone as a type of entrepreneur. And he also talked about religion, right? He talked about religion being a friend of liberty in a way that it wasn't in his own native France, where the forces of the church and the forces of liberty were in sort of in mortal combat with each other for most of the 19th century. And he said in America, it's very different. He said that religion... Uh, acts as a type of civilizing influence, and it encourages and fosters self-restraint. It fosters self-restraint, and it backs up the insights of reason about why virtue is good and why other forms of behavior are not so good by, um, by appealing to divine revelation. So I guess that, that the question that, le that leaves us with is what you're pointing to is, okay, so what happens when the state gets really involved in things like the economy to the degree it is today? Or what happens when religion either gets marginalized or self-marginalizes itself by talking about stuff that clerics really have no business talking about because it's not their field of expertise? And I think we're starting to see that the consequences of that are not especially helpful. And I, I mean, I know people, and I'm sure you know people who are not particularly uh, uh, religious themselves, who would say, absolutely, this is a huge problem. Michael Novak called them, these people, smiling secularists. And he said, they recognize that there's a problem when this type of religious influence starts to break down and the effects and consequences that has for our conception of liberty and for individualism. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking as well, you know, uh, Tocqueville also feared, uh, and you've alluded to this, that some of the love of equality 
within democracies itself was a problem, uh, just a just a permanent problem within a democracy that you had to negotiate. And you know things, you know people, because we are ultimately um, equal uh, in a democracy. You know, there's no there's no conception of of an aristocracy being formed, uh, although there might be great wealth. Um, there's something about that that makes us uh, prefer it uh, and makes us you know, see other people in that light. And you know, we start to fight each other uh, over that, uh, over trying to pull people down, even. Um, and that's just part of the tension. What and then, you know, this could be exacerbated by, um, you know, he thought in democracy, people would prefer simple ideas to explain complex realities, including the human person, which, you know, might lead to the extinguishing of freedom. And it, also people retreat into themselves in a democracy. They lose conception of anything beyond them, themselves, maybe in close family members, a few friends. So they lose contact with their neighbors, with their communities. Uh, and then they start to, be alone, and they're dominated by large social trends. They're dominated by government trends. They start to actually accept this. Uh, they lose the habits of self-government. Like all of this is within democracy itself, and it seems to me that's like, as as I you know, just thinking about the situation of our country the last twenty years, even we've slipped even further. Uh, I think into a social democracy, into this. I won't use a term. I won't use Tocqueville's term of soft despotism. But we're we're slipping into vast social welfare spending, uh, laggard economic growth, uh, you know, religious decline, moral decline, slowly, slowly, and we're just sort of, you know, how do we get out of it? Um, and you know, then you, you you look at these things which are running with it or causing it, even diversity, ideology, expressive individualism, the the ways out of that, um, in terms of trying to turn the ship around are very hard to do. Um, and it, it does make you wonder about democracy itself sometimes. Yes. I mean, democracy, certainly the way that Tocqueville understood it, um, can certainly have these, what you might call leveling effects upon society, because in the Republic that Tocqueville encountered, there was no um, aristocracy in the sense that there are a class of people who are accorded legal privileges by virtue of their birth. Now, I, I suspect Tocqueville, in fact, I know Tocqueville said that if you went to the southern states, when he went into the southern states, he discovered a society that was actually somewhat aristocratic in the way that it operated, and he attributed slavery as one of the reasons for that, because it bred a very, you know, by definition, you have excluded people of a particular color from the full rights of citizenship, and in fact, you treat them like property. So he saw this straight away. So um, yes, I think that's that's what your, your insight about democracy is 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 obviously true, and the way that this can sort of facilitate this leveling, which in turn opens up the role for a bigger role for the state to get involved in all sorts of different aspects of human life. So what does one? do about this? Well, it seems to me that this is the reason, one of the reasons I wrote this paper is that we need to rehabilitate certain ideas that are capable, I think, are robust enough to be able to sustain communities that want to take a different position from things like expressive individualism or diverse, diversity ideology. And the scholar, I think, who was pretty good on this subject was 
someone we mentioned before, the late Michael Novak, and his book, his book, The Spirit of Democratic Capitalism, because he talks there a lot about um, America being pretty associational as a country. And even now, I would say today, America is a much more associational country than, say, most continental European countries where the state is just everywhere. But, you know, even even now, the state is involved heavily, as you know. Yes. In those civil society organizations, funding them, directing them. Right. Wanting, you know, education, private education. Right. Um, And, you know, that's where I see um, significant hope in things like the school choice movement, um, in the willingness and I think maybe COVID exacerbated this in the sense that it it um, showed up the lousy job that public schools are, and in many cases were doing in different parts of the country and resulted in lots of parents taking their children out of public schools and sending them to private schools, some of a faith nature, some not of a faith nature. We saw that happen. Um, uh, we also, I think, at different points um, – have seen different religious revivals go on at different points of American history as a reaction against, partly a reaction against some unfortunate social trends that have manifested themselves at different points of American history. But I think the other thing that uh, is we need to rehabilitate, which goes along with American individualism, is the idea of pluralism, pluralism properly understood. And Novak talked a lot about this. And he said that pluralism is not the same thing as diversity. It recognizes there are differences. It recognizes that um, there are a variety of different groups, people with different backgrounds, etc. And that the we need to provide space for these institutions, these, these different types of um, social formations. And we need free speech, free press, free intellectual inquiry that enables us to uh, explore that plurality and to in, to allow that plurality to be a rich thing. But that also, he said, has to go along with the idea that there are there is a common human nature, that there are moral norms that everyone can recognize. And so you bring together, if you like, reflection upon the reality that there are different groups, that have been in present in America for long or even short periods of time, but that's compatible with having a society in which certain norms, universal truths, prevail. Um, and you know, maybe it's the it's the case that we have to get to the point where people who may not even have thought too much about these questions look around and say, "Well, actually, maybe we do need." <laughs> We do need to recognize that without some common norms, the country can't literally hold together. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something that you talk about. You know, towards the end is self-government, and that's a term conservatives we throw around a lot. We use it a lot. Uh, we mean different things by it. It, 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 it means different things. Um, but that also becomes very difficult. I mean. It, you think about diversity, and you said, you know, diversity is really the enemy of pluralism. It's it's the enemy of of the ways that uh, a, a free society can can deal with difference uh, and not at the same time outlaw people uh, or outlaw certain kinds of thought um, just because you know maybe I, I disagree with the way in which you are expressing your individualism, and, and now all of a sudden I've lost my job and I'm canceled or something like that. I'm removed from any ability to speak. Um, diversity does that. 
uh, and it makes it hard for us to sort of negotiate and speak and debate and be accountable to one another. Um, so let me think about this self-government uh, itself and an American freedom. And, uh, you know, what does that mean? And why is that in peril? Well, self-government is clearly something that I think, the as you said, American conservatives have often emphasized. Those involved in um, what you might call the broader freedom movement have always said, have for the most part always said things like, freedom must go along with personal responsibility, that if you're going to be free, then you need to be recognized that you are responsible for your actions and will be held accountable for your actions, whether it's your friends telling you you're behaving like an idiot or the legal system saying, no, you broke the law and so therefore you have to pay the consequences. And self-government, of course, is, is it, it, the whole idea implies that you assume responsibility for your actions and you, you freely choose to live a life in which you're willing to restrain yourself from simply just acting according to your passions, like behaving like, like an animal, right? Now, this isn't a new, new issue. Uh, it's an issue that has gone way back, all the way back to the Greeks. You think about the, the debates between people like Epicurus and the hedonists, versus Aristotle and those who adhered to a more or less what we would call a sort of natural law position. Uh, so, so this debate about the importance of self-governance versus I get to do whatever the heck I want as long as I don't, don't directly harm anyone, no matter how self-degrading it, it may, my actions might happen to be, um, it's not a new one. The thing is, though, that the, the, the sort of self-expression and, and authenticity and I... I I get to do whatever I want as long as I don't directly hurt people. The problem with that is it's partly not only is it philosophically incoherent and not true to human nature, I think it also ends up destroying itself in the end. And it's, it, it, it presents itself, I think, and you look at it and you recognize even someone who sort of thinks of themselves as a pretty free-spirited person will look at this and say, you know, I just don't think that's what we're supposed to be doing. And here's the other thing. The moment you enter into social relationships with people and you take other people seriously, you don't behave like that. You don't let your children behave like that. Uh, people don't let their spouses behave like that. They call, they, they, they make everyone accountable to each other. And I think that's, that's the sort of sine qua non of anyone who lives in, in a free society because if you don't have self-government, then at some point you can be sure the state is going to get involved to, quote-unquote, let's have some rules around here. Let's put some order back into society. It's a sort of argument that it, when you have relativism, when you have this type of relativism, you open the door, whether you realize it or not, to the state taking on a pretty authoritarian role. And by the way, we see this with some people in what you might call the new right, who are who are openly calling for the state to get much more involved in shaping the moral culture, because they look at the moral culture and say, "Well, it's the moral ecology is a mess, and we seem incapable of fixing it ourselves. So, therefore, the federal government should come in and take care of it." Which I think it opens up the door to all sorts of problems that would be very wise. Well, to try and, and you just and you have to assume what happens when your opponents will. Will that same power? Precisely. Um, 
um, that's that sort of long term thinking seems on short order these days. Um, so thinking about you know this this problem, you know, it also it seems to me the relativism that I think was really a much part of American life in the '90s and and the first decade of the 21st century in terms of like you know and so I mean it goes back even further. I mean the great book Closing of the American Mind uh, talked about this and you know, college campuses in the 1980s. But it really did prepare the way, I think, for things like anti-racism and critical race theory. Uh, no truth, no human nature, no virtue opens to – well, it, it means what we in the community of informed, uh, cultural, uh, enlightened people deem to be the truth. And that is you know, something like equality, you know, equality of race uh, by result, something like that. And every institution should conform to that. If not, it's racist. And that becomes sort of the – or the attempt right now is to make that sort of the formal principle of American life. And they're you know, um, having certain – a lot of success in a lot of important places in terms of how people are formed and shaped. Uh, so we, we deal with that. And I think maybe ending – seems to me we're still left with what uh, you know, the late Peter Lawler called stuck with virtue, uh, stuck with human nature. Um, if we're going to rehabilitate American freedom – uh, properly understood, um, we we have to help people understand that uh, there are choices that lead to flourishing and that and choices that lead to degrading uh, situations, and it's not optional. It's not relative. Yeah, know? and I I think one way of doing that is pointing to the way that people actually live their lives for the most part. Right. So if you think of, I'm thinking, for example, of people who who see liberty as a sort of libertinism. Liberty is libertinism. Liberty is a reason to behave in particular ways. But yet I've noticed um, with most people who describe themselves that way, they don't live their family lives for the most part like that. Um, they They don't necessarily treat their neighbors in that particular way. In other words, there's clearly a gap between I mean, I hate the expression lived reality, but there's a gap between the actual lived reality and the philosophical position that some uh, such people hold themselves to, right? So, uh, I, I mean, I find it interesting, for example, that there are many people on the left who are all in favor of CRT and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Um, and it's interesting that so many of them come from what you might call white upper middle class backgrounds. They send their children to private schools. Often they go to church, interestingly enough. And so, so in other words, there's a gap between how they actually live their lives and some of the, the sort of philosophical positions that they propose. And I think it's worth highlighting that and saying, okay, imagine if you actually had everyone living their lives according to self expression. Authenticity was literally the only thing that mattered. I think in many cases it gives them cause for pause. But also I think it's it's important for us to sort of re-engage the argument about human nature because what is it what what makes us different from the animals? And what does that mean in terms of our free choices? Because if you accept that we are the beings that know that we know. Right? We are human beings. We have reason. We're the only creature that knows that we know who we are and that we have consciousness and we have intellect. And we're also the only being that has will, and certainly I believe free will. 
And if you think those things, reason and free will, have something to do with each other, then that leads you to some pretty, at least starts you on the path of realizing that just merely appealing to authenticity is um, not really in accordance with who we are as people, as human beings, as humans qua humans, and that the fact that I am black or white, a female, male, whatever, name your category, that we all have reason, we all have free will. And that, I think, is, is once you accept that proposition, and I think anyone who engages in, in the intellectual life has to accept that proposition at some point, because otherwise, what's the point of getting involved in the discussion at all, right? Because if you're truly a skeptic, a true skeptic should just shut up, right? Because they have nothing to contribute to the conversation because they don't believe anything is true and that there's really no point in having any reflection upon these sorts of matters at all. So I think to the extent that we can re-engage these questions about who we are as human beings, that I think will give us, lead us in the direction uh, of understanding what really freedom is actually all about, and also its roots. And that's why I said, I mean, I think this American individualism is very important because it's rooted in certain themes that Americans, or at least certainly the American founding, took very seriously and recognized as universal in their implications. Sam Gregg, I think that's a really a good philosophical note (laughs) for us to end this discussion on. Uh, We've been talking with Sam Gregg, a distinguished fellow in political economy and senior research faculty at the American Institute for Economic Research. He's also a visiting fellow here at the Heritage Foundation. His paper, American Individualism, Rightly Understood, can be found on the website of the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much. Thanks, Richard, and thanks to all the Heritage listeners.